You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In the uh, three Sundays leading up to the Christmas Eve services on that weekend, we're going to be looking at a part of the Christmas story that not many people are familiar with. We're going to focus on two people who did not make it into the nativity scene. Their names were Simon, or Simeon rather, and Anna. They were not there on the night of the birth of Christ, but neither were the wise men who made it into the nativity scene, even though they didn't show up until two years after the birth of Christ, long after Mary and Joseph had left that stable in Bethlehem. Now, this part of the story that we're going to be looking at occurs five miles from Bethlehem in the city of Jerusalem at the temple there. And here's what we read in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So, first of all, the scene takes place in the temple in Jerusalem. This is in keeping with the law of Moses, which was the law that governed the Jewish people at the time. And this law of Moses had set clear rituals in place uh, for how to mark and really celebrate the birth of a child, particularly a firstborn child. And the purpose of these rites was twofold, really to thank God for the gift of this child, and then secondly, to dedicate or to consecrate this child to God. This is kind of what we do when we do child dedications uh, from time to time here at Seabreeze. Now, if possible, this ritual was to take place at the temple in Jerusalem. And since Bethlehem was only five miles from Jerusalem, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple 45 days after he had been born. So he was still very much a baby. Now, I'm calling this the last day of Christmas because this is the last thing we hear about the birth of Christ, the infant Christ. This is the last thing we hear about Jesus at the baby stage until... He's 12. That's the next thing we hear about Jesus. And then we don't hear anything until he is 30. And most of the New Testament records the life and the words and works of Jesus from age 30 to 33. So this really is the last scene that captures the story of the birth of Christ. These are the last words about baby Jesus. Last words tend to be summary words. They capture what the speaker really wants the listener to remember, to recall about the incident. And so when we think of the birth of Christ, these are the words that God intended to leave ringing in our ears as we think of the story of the birth of Christ. These are the words that summarize who Jesus is and what his birth means for everyone in this world. So over the next three weeks, I want to consider three phrases that emerge out of this story. Two of them are spoken by the two people. One is spoken about the first individual, uh, Simeon. So this is the first phrase we're going to look at. It's a description of what this child meant to Simeon and by extension means to us today. So let's continue the story, Luke 2, 25 through 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. 
Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The phrase I want to focus on is what it is that Simon was waiting for. It says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The first point is he was waiting. This is why we call this season the season of Advent. That's what the word Advent means. It literally means to wait for the arrival of someone important. And this was true of the nation of Israel and of Simon in particular. They had been waiting and waiting and waiting for the arrival of this Savior, this promised Messiah. But what's interesting is he is called the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? Well, to console is to bring comfort to someone in grief, in loss. Israel needed consoling because the history of Israel has been a history of great loss and grief. They were familiar with tears. And so a Messiah had been promised that would console them. But the promise wasn't just for them, as Simeon even says here. This is to be a light to the Gentiles. The consolation, the comfort in the middle of tears and grief, was to extend beyond Israel to the entire world. And that's because the up-and-down history of Israel mirrors our own up-and-down history. Like Israel, we have had good moments. And like Israel, we have had moments of great sin and great loss and tremendous grief. We know of the sadness that requires the kind of consoling, the kind of comforting that we can't seem to find here. Report after report and study after study keep giving evidence right now in our culture to the deepening sadness that is occurring, especially among the young. We need consolation. And as an individual, we often feel helpless when it comes to consoling. I don't know about you, but I, I feel helpless when I'm trying to console someone in the middle of a loss or in the middle of deep grief. My thought as I attempt to console them is often, what can I do? How can I help? I can't replace the loss. I can't solve the cause of this grief. And the truth is, we are limited as individuals to bring consolation. All I can really do is cry with someone, grieve with them. Now, I know that that means something. I have learned that my presence, just sitting there and tearing up with someone, can provide tremendous comfort, but it never solves the grief. It never ends the tears. But we are told that Simeon was waiting not just for another consolation, but the consolation, the answer to sadness. This is not just another in a long line of arms, around shoulders, but this is an answer to all of the grief. This was the promised Messiah, which means Savior, the one whom the prophets said would wipe away our tears and bring an end to all the gloom. This is one of the prophecies about this. It's found in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah, the prophet, says this, 750 years before the birth of Christ. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. 
The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This was fulfilled in Jesus. This prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. He was the one who brought honor to the region now known as Galilee. It used to be known as belonging to the tribe of Zebulun and Naphtali, and it had gone through some particularly hard times as a part of the nation of Israel. The Gentiles had renamed it Galilee, and this is one of the places where Jesus did most of his ministry. And in doing that, this place that had been forsaken now regained honor in the history of Israel and in the history, really, of the world. We know of this name because Jesus lived there and did his ministry there. The prophet Isaiah predicted that Jesus would be the one who would lift the gloom of this world. And now, 750 years after that prophecy, the Holy Spirit nudged Simeon to see and identify 45-day-old Jesus as the fulfillment of this prophecy. But the question this today is how can the birth of Christ 2,000 years ago affect the gloom and the sadness that we might be facing right now? Well, gloom is caused by darkness, and Jesus is the answer, which means he's the light. The word gloom is used two ways. It's used in a physical sense to, to bring a, a sense of darkness in the physical world, as well as darkness on the inside, which we mean by, by, by that we mean sadness. So physical gloom occurs whenever the light coming into our eyes is dimmed, either because it's getting darker outside or there's something wrong with our eyes, and and our vision is, is dimmed. It's gloomy. The same thing is true when emotionally the light coming on the inside into our hearts that gives us hope is dimmed and we struggle to see our way forward. That's often how we use the term gloom. Now, this is common. This experience of sadness, of gloom, is common because, as the prophet says, we are living in the land of the shadow of death. What that means is long before the lights go out on our own life, we experience the shadow that precedes the reality of death. We experience the shadow of death in a, a thousand smaller deaths, smaller sadnesses. I mean, it might be the hope of, of a great marriage that is now dimming or maybe has ended, has died. It could be the, the hope of raising great kids that at the moment is looking questionable. Or maybe it's the realization that while you are 35 and you're still young, your body is no longer responding the way it did when you were 20 and you're beginning to experience the reality of time. That's a hard, that's a hard thing, for, particularly for guys to experience. This year, the financial outlook turned gloomy for many people. But there's many ways in which gloom enters into our life, our experience, and then into our hearts, our emotions. Whenever a future hope dims, it casts a shadow of gloom. But, as it says, in the land of the shadow of death, that's where we live, a light now has dawned. What does that look like? To understand what this means practically, we need to move forward from 45-day-old Jesus to 33-year-old Jesus. And I want to look at a, an event that took place in the life of Jesus. It's recorded in John chapter 11. Because it's in this event that Jesus shows us what it means to be the light in the land of the shadow of death. In John chapter 11, it begins with Jesus getting word that one of his closest friends is sick and appears to be on, on the edge of death. 
It turns out the report is accurate. Just a few days after Jesus gets this report, his good friend Lazarus does die. And the death of Lazarus is one of only three times in the New Testament that we read of Jesus himself crying. He felt grief himself over this. And what transpires next after Lazarus dies is not just a story to be amazed by. It really is evidence, recorded evidence of history, that Jesus is not just an emotional light to help us feel better in a particular moment, but he really is the answer to the land that is marked by the shadow of death. And the question for all of us is, do we see Jesus for who he is? Because without that, the light remains covered and will not illuminate our own sadness. So this is the first point this morning. We are consoled when we see Jesus. If he's, if he's the light, but we don't recognize him for who he is, then it's like a light in another room that does nothing to illuminate our immediate surroundings. We are consoled when we see Jesus. The one word summary for this point is the word believe. This is how we see Jesus. We believe in who he claimed to be and what he did. So Jesus gets the news that his good friend Lazarus is near death. And as soon as he gets the news, this is the next thing he says. It's found in John chapter 11, verses 9 through 10. Jesus answered. So again, what he's answering is, your good friend is on death's door. This is what Jesus says. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. So this is an odd response to the news that your friend is near death. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he points out the fact that daylight in this world averages 12 hours. You know, if you're closer to the poles, it, it swings widely, but the average is 12 hours of daylight on the earth. But is daylight the only part of a day? No. It's just one half of the part of an entire day. Daylight is followed by night. And Jesus is referring to the fact that the life that we have on earth is kind of like the life of his friend Lazarus and that it's only one part of our total life. It's the daylight part. This is the daylight part of our life. When we die, we enter into the night part of our life, the part that we can't see, the part that we fear and don't know what's going to happen in. Now, if we could see into the night, then we would not fear death. We would not grieve over the shadows of death that are affecting our life. And Jesus is saying, I am the only source of light that can shine in that darkness. There is no light on this earth. There's no flashlight. There's no power that's bright enough to help us penetrate into the night of our lives, into that part of our lives. Now, Jesus could have just ended with this kind of a riddled statement, but he went on, having said this, to show them what this really meant. Jesus delayed his arrival to the home of Lazarus for four days. It becomes clear later that the reason he delayed the arrival is because he wanted to wait for Lazarus to die. If he had shown up immediately, there would have been a demand for him to heal his good friend because he had done plenty of that by this time. But Jesus wanted to make a point that required his good friend to have already died. So he shows up four days after the death of Lazarus. 
The family is now in mourning. One of Lazarus' sisters is very upset that Jesus uh, chose to delay his arrival. In fact, she's so upset that she refuses to go out and greet him, which was a tremendous snub towards Jesus. So what could Jesus say when he walks up to this sister of Lazarus, the, the sister who was not wanting to talk to him? What could he say to this sister, to the rest of the family, to all the friends that had gathered to grieve the death of this person they all loved? Well, what Jesus ended up saying is something that only he could say and back up. This is what we read in John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said to her, the sister, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. After he said this, then Jesus went out to the tomb of Lazarus, and he asked for the stone to be removed. The way the tombs were often done in the day, they were sides in the hills, caves carved out on the side of a hill, a large stone rolled over it, Lazarus had been in there four days. Jesus asks the stone to be removed, which was not something you asked. But they did it. In verse 43 through 44, we read the story as it continues. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And then it says, the dead man came out. Now just imagine if you were there and you saw this, and you saw them roll back the stone, and you saw Jesus holler into this dark cave with the smell of death coming out of it, you had to think he's, he's lost his mind in grief. And then the dead man comes walking out? This wasn't just one person that saw this, because then it would be written off as a hallucination. This was many people who saw this. Well, then just a few weeks after this amazing event took place, the table's were turned, and by that I mean Jesus himself was now facing death. He was crucified on a cross. He died, and like his good friend Lazarus, he was buried in a cave and covered with a stone. The difference was this stone had the Roman seal placed over it, and Roman guards uh, put in front of it to make sure that no one tried to remove this stone and steal this body, because the rumor of Jesus' power of death had spread. You don't bring someone back to life and not have that story spread throughout the nation. The rumors were strong, and people insisted on what they had seen. Well, the rumors wanted this body to stay put in this particular cave. Well, of course, if you know the story, you know that it didn't stay put. Three days later, Jesus came out of the grave, proving his power over death. What was Jesus doing when he raised Lazarus from the dead? He was doing something in this life that everyone present could see and could write about. He was raising the dead. In order to prove his power, to do what none of us can see, give life after death. We cannot see beyond this life. It's night to us. We can't see beyond the daylight part of our lives. So Jesus did something in the daylight, bring someone back to life to prove that he could do something in the night of death that none of us can see, that he can bring life after death. This is the evidence that he did at that moment. After Jesus said to the sister, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live even though he die, he turned to this sister, he turned to Martha, and he said this, do you believe this? Do you believe this? 
That's the question that was true then and lingers today. Do you believe? Now, as belief in Jesus has diminished in our culture over the last hundred years or so, a replacement belief and a replacement understanding of belief has taken place. So now, when we say belief, we really have to define what we mean because our culture is pretty confused and has a lot of different ideas about what this word believe means. If you've seen the Believe in Magic fireworks show at Disney, you'll get an earful of what our culture tends to think of belief. So this is the Christmas Disney fireworks show. And if you go to Disneyland now, it's amazing. I mean, Christmas at Disney is it's amazing. And at night, they shoot the fireworks off. And then in that great sound system that fills that park with beautiful music and powerful emotion, these are the lyrics that you hear as you're looking up at the sky exploding in light before you. This is not all of the lyrics. This is some of them. Here's what it says. Can you remember how Christmas makes you feel? Not, not the arguments and stuff, but, but <laughs> nostalgic Christmas. Can you remember how Christmas makes you feel? The special magic in the air and all your dreams were real. I don't know what Christmas they're talking about, but <laughs> believe in the magic in our lives. Just open up your heart and relive the feeling. Again, not the arguments, not the conflicts, but this other thing. Just remember the magic. Yes, remember the magic. One more time, treasure it again. It never has to end. Until midnight and they kick you out of the park. But <laughs> it never has to end. Remember the magic in our lives. Just open up your heart. Embrace all those feelings. Just remember the meaning. Yes, remember the feeling for all time. I don't even know what any of that means. <laughs> Other than try to gin up some kind of Christmas feeling. You know, take the best memory you have and, and try to make it bigger or something or, or remember it again and again. I'm not sure what it means. And this is why there's so much confusion when we talk about belief in Christ because these ideas have, have affected what we think belief means. You know, and as you watch the fireworks and hear the music, you will feel pretty good. As long as your three-year-old doesn't need to go to the bathroom right then. But otherwise, you're, you're going to feel great as you look up at the sky. But the next day, you will wake up to your real life. The believing feelings will be gone, and the gloom will be back. So Jesus, when he asked Martha, do you believe this? He wasn't asking a feeling question. He was asking a seeing question. Do you see me for who I am? Do you believe that I have the power to do this, that I am who I claim to be? Can you see this? And this is the question today. Have you taken the time to read with your own eyes what Jesus said and what he did? Have you looked at this with your eyes? Not feelings, your eyes and your mind. If you've never done this, I think this would be a great time of year to read the story of Jesus. And I would recommend you read the book of Luke in the New Testament portion of the Bible. It starts with the Christmas story, the birth of Christ, and goes on to tell the whole story of the life of Christ. Read it. 
for yourself. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read it. So have you taken the time to read the story of Jesus, to listen to what he did and what he said? And have you asked God to help you see who Jesus really is? Because what Jesus said and what he did is real. And the question is, do you see it? If you see Jesus for who he is, the child who was born, God in flesh, to console, to comfort the world by dying in our place so that we could have eternal life, life after death, then we are consoled. You have a real answer. Not just a feeling answer, but a real answer. So then the question remains, if you believe, if you have seen Jesus for who he is and accepted him, then why don't you feel great all the time? I mean, let's be honest. Why don't you feel better? Why don't I feel better? Why do we still cry? I still cry. Well, it's because Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, who cried himself over the death of Lazarus, has brought true comfort, but that comfort has not yet been completed. We are still living in the land of the shadow of death. And that brings us to the second point this morning, and that is this. We are consoled as we seek Jesus. So first, we are consoled when we see Jesus. We first have to identify Jesus for who he is, if we're going to receive his comfort. Otherwise, he's just a person of history that we may have a bunch of different thoughts about. But there's no actual comfort for us today. We must first see him. But having seen him, that's not enough to receive comfort now. We must seek him. The one-word summary for this is follow. One-word summary for the first point is believe, and this is follow. Seeing Jesus for who he is means that you've found the one who can console you. You now have the arm of the one who created heaven and earth wrapping around your shoulder, and he can do much more than just cry with you. He can comfort. But we are still living in this land. It's not enough to see the light. We must now walk in that light. John chapter 8, verse 12, we read something that Jesus said that's very fascinating about this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. This is the theme we've been looking at. Whoever, and he's, here's the key word, follows me, not just believes me, but also goes on to follow me, follows me, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This life, there will be light brought into this life as you follow him. So Jesus is the light of the world. He's the only one who can beat back the shadows of death. But in order to see that light, we have to walk in the middle of the shadows with him. We need to follow him. Now, one day, Jesus will appear and wrap up history. And in that day, everyone will see him. He'll be as obvious as the sun in the sky. But now, seeing Jesus and the light that he gives is more like finding and following a path, a lit path in a dark cave. You have to stay on the path. If you get off the path, you're in darkness. So how do we do that? We put in the ongoing effort to listen to his words and use them to guide us. Matthew 7, 7 records a statement that Jesus said often. Here's what it says. Jesus speaking says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. 
Knock, and the door will be open to you. This is not Jesus saying, ask for anything you want, and you'll get it. Seek for anything you want, you'll find it. He's talking about himself. And if you want to figure out who I am, you're going to have to seek, and you're going to have to ask questions, and you're going to have to knock on the door, and then I'll open the door, and you'll come to see me. This is God's approach to relationship with us. Only those who seek him will find him. Only those who knock on the door and say, could I please have a relationship with you, God, will have that door opened. Another way of saying this is God will not overpower us. He will not impose his presence on us. He will not impose a relationship on us because that's not a real relationship. He has the power to make himself as obvious, as, like I said, as the sun and more obvious. But he doesn't do that. Because that wouldn't be a real choice. That wouldn't be a real relationship. That would be an imposed relationship, which undermines a relationship. So when it came to the birth of Christ, his biggest move, taking on a body and arriving on earth, the only show in the sky that night was for shepherds who had no influence and no power. You know, the bright light in the sky that we celebrate on Christmas, the the angels singing glory to God in the highest that we have Christmas carols about, The audience was a group of shepherds. No one would believe them. No one would allow them to influence what they think. And God knew this. That's why they were the audience. God wanted to make sure there was evidence, but only for those who were seeking. For those who weren't seeking, this wouldn't mean anything to them. The only ones of power that eventually showed up and made it into that nativity scene were the wise men. As I said, they arrived two years later because they had been seeking for two years. That's why they showed up. They were the only ones of influence. They were seekers. The prophecy we looked at earlier, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 12, that spoke about the the place where Jesus would live in Galilee was one of over 300 specific prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. Years before Jesus arrived, God gave his prophets specific details about the life of the promised Messiah so that when the Messiah would show up, they could check the prophecies and line it up with the details and see if this person was truly the Messiah or just an imposter. So the prophets said, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. The Messiah then grows up in Nazareth. And then the Messiah settles in Galilee. This is just three of over 300 specific identifiers that were given by the prophets about the life of the Messiah. Born in Bethlehem, grows up in Nazareth, and settles in Galilee. Now, this was when people didn't move much. People move a lot now. And the towns were small. You stayed put. So let's take... Take my life, for example. Here's my first three locations. I was born in Jamestown, North Dakota. We then moved to Cairnport, Saskatchewan. See if you can find that on a map. (laughs) Then we moved to Dallas, Oregon, where I graduated from high school. Those were the first three places on my personal journey. Just try to find one other person who isn't part of my family that made that specific trek. I don't think you can. I mean, no one goes to Cairnport. 
Jamestown, maybe. Dallas, Oregon, that's beautiful, right next to Salem. It's small, though. That's, that's pretty much unique to me. That's why when you are asked those security questions, you know, I won't say any more. <laughs> but you just, you just can't find this. But when it came to Jesus, the three places of Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Galilee, that was just three of 300-plus specific prophecies, indicators that Jesus fulfilled. You may be aware of two-factor authentication now that's, that's becoming more popular if you try to log onto your device or log onto a website. Two-factor authentication means that we're just not going to trust that it's you if all you know is your password because someone might know your password. So we're going to ask for another piece of identifying information unique to you. And if those two factors line up, it's almost impossible that it's not you. So when it came to identifying who the Messiah was, God decided to give us 300-plus factor authentication. You can't crack that. God was making it obvious. Obvious to whom? Those who were seeking. Who's ever going to find this? Who's ever going to take the time to go through those 300 prophecies? Only those who are seeking to find out who Jesus is. I mean, these 300 prophecies will never be made into a movie. They're boring. They're, they're just facts about the life of Jesus. The Bible just sits there waiting for people to pick it up and read it and learn about this. And Simeon was one of those over the course of history who had read and who was seeking. He had been looking for the Messiah. So it was Simeon who saw Jesus and who he was before anyone else did on that day in the temple in Jerusalem. Simeon got Christmas before it was ever called Christmas, which is why he said what he did when he held the Christ child. Let me read it again. It's profound what he said. Luke 2, 29 through 32, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He says, I can die now. I've seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. All the authentication, this, you've not hidden this. Anyone who wants to see this can see this. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's us. And the glory of your people Israel. Until you come to understand what Simeon did, Christmas is only going to be an annual holiday a chance to party, a moment of celebration with family and friends, you know, beer commercials and Santa Claus, uh, moments of nostalgia, if you can generate those. But it will not be the great light that has dawned on the land of the shadow of death. So the question for all of us is, do you believe? Do you see? Are your eyes opened? And if not, are you asking God to help you see? And are you are you seeking, are you following this Jesus? If so, this can be a time of great comfort, not sadness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how clear you are for those who want to know. You could, with your great power, make it obvious 
and impose your relationship with us on us. But that wouldn't be a relationship. So in your wisdom, you have left plenty of evidence for those who really want to seek. And so I pray for us that you would help us to see you anew, those of us that already believe, that we would once again stand in awe at the fact that you are the resurrection and the life, and that by believing in you, we have the promise of life after death. We pray for those in our community who are still walking in the land of the shadow of death without this great light that has dawned. They cannot see it. I pray, Father, that you would turn their hearts towards you, that you would draw them to seek and to look. I pray that you would give us insight into who we can invite for this message series and who we can invite on Christmas Eve, that they might hear and might see who you are. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.